Last week we saw that the unbelief of Israel, her rejection of the Messiah, has provoked a theological crisis of massive proportions. It appears as though the Word of God has failed. The Old Testament is replete with promises from Abraham all the way through the prophets of Israel's ultimate blessing and eternal salvation. I want to give you just one representative example from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32 Beginning in verse 37, God says, Behold, I will gather them, Israel, from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and in my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. It's quite a promise. And that promise is repeated Over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And yet Israel, by and large, has rejected the Messiah that God sent in order to redeem them and to establish with them this very everlasting covenant. In other words, it appears that Israel's unbelief and rejection of Christ has triumphed over God's promise It appears that Israel's rebellion has frustrated God's purpose. And this is a massive problem for Paul. And it's a massive problem for us. Because Paul has just concluded Romans 1 through 8 with five extraordinary declarations of God's triumphant grace toward his people. Culminating in this soaring promise. Romans 8, 38, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Yet it appears that there is something that can separate us from God's covenantal love and grace, namely, unbelief. After all, it was Israel's unbelief that has separated them from the covenant, has it not? What then is to stop unbelief from separating us from God's covenant love as well? Perhaps in our sin and faithlessness, we too could be cast away, or as Paul describes it in Romans 9, 2, accursed and cut off from Christ. Now it's at this point that I should mention that there is a significant portion of the Christian church that believes just that. They're called Arminians, or more historically accurate, they're called semi-Pelagians. 
Essentially, they believe that God's promises and his purposes, the exercise of God's sovereign will is constrained and limited by the human will. You'll often hear such people argue along these lines. The one thing God cannot do is impose upon our free will. Or God wants us to love him and real love must be rooted in real choice. For such people, the promises of Romans 8, for instance, carry with them an assumed qualification. They read Romans 8 like this, in other words. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Except our own sin and unbelief. Therefore, the apostasy and the unbelief of Israel presents no problem for them. God offered to save Israel, and they refused. Where's the problem? In such a theology, there can be no real assurance, because one's salvation is not eternally secure. It's entirely dependent upon human self-determination. Whether one is saved or not, depends in the final analysis on one's faith or unbelief. Whether one stays saved or not, depends entirely upon one's faithfulness. Now, traditional Southern Baptists, while not classical Arminians like Nazarenes or Methodists, traditional Southern Baptists, still have their own way of handling this problem. Desiring to have their cake and eat it too, they affirm a doctrine of eternal security and a commitment to human self-determination. How? Well, they posit that once a sinner freely chooses to believe in Jesus, unconstrained by any outside external force, God then comes in and so changes their heart that unbelief becomes an impossibility. But really, I would say that such people are just inconsistent Arminians. Because what they've done is undercut their core assumption that God does not, indeed he cannot, impose upon man's free will. Why, I ask... Would God not be willing to impose upon a lost man's free will, but he is willing to impose upon a saved man's free will, so as to remove from them the possibility of not believing? I thought real love required real choice. Apparently not, if after conversion in this way of thinking, God is able to remove our freedom to choose not to believe. And indeed, he does so in order that we may love him fully. Evidently, real love is not as dependent upon free will as many of us would like to think. But both groups, the classical Arminians and the inconsistent Arminians, have no idea what to make of Romans 9. Therefore, they either ignore it altogether or they resort to some interpretation by which God is talking about a corporate election rather than an individual election. An election of nations to temporal blessings rather than an election of individuals to eternal 
blessings. But as we will see, this interpretation fails to make sense of the text. The fact is that God made promises to Abraham. Genesis 12, 15, and 17. He made promises to Israel. Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 31 and 32, Ezekiel 36, and many, many others. He made promises to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that contain absolutely no conditions and no qualifications. God did not say to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation if, or I will make with you and your offspring after you an everlasting covenant if. God did not say to Israel in his promises of the new covenant, like we read from Jeremiah 32, I will circumcise your heart and that of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, if. Or I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be my people and I will be your God, if. God did not say to David, I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish his kingdom and his throne forever, if. In fact, God said exactly the opposite to David. My steadfast love will not depart from your son as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. In other words, those promises are all of them unconditional not finally dependent upon the faithfulness or the free will of Israel, but upon the sovereign purpose of God. And yet, by and large, Israel is accursed of God and cut off from Christ, says Paul in Romans 9.3. That's why Paul's asking the question, has the word of God failed? God made an unconditional promise to Israel and they appear to not be receiving it. Therefore, the only conclusion, one might think, is that God's promise has come to naught. This is a massive concern for Paul and it ought to be a massive concern for us because the new covenant promises in Christ enumerated in Romans chapter 8, for instance, are of the same unconditional variety as the new covenant promises made to Israel. Indeed, they're the same promises. Therefore, if Israel can forfeit the covenant through unbelief and cause the word of God to fail, what does that mean for us? If my ability to remain faithful is the ultimate, determining, decisive factor in my eternal salvation, then I have no hope because I have no confidence in my own faith and I have no confidence in my own obedience. Years of experience have proven to me that if left to my own free will, unconstrained by divine grace, then given sufficient trial, sufficient tribulation, or sufficient temptation, my faith will fail, my resolve will crumble, and I will betray Christ for the sake of sin. In other words, I need something stronger than my own resolve. I need something stronger than my own will. I need something stronger than my own faith on which to construct my assurance and my confidence. But thank God I do have something stronger than myself on which I can rest. 
I have the sovereign purpose of God's election, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Beloved, the word of God has not failed because the will of man is not determinative in the matter of eternal salvation. Paul is going to make this point explicit in Romans 9. Look down at verse 16 with me. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Look at verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's bedrock on which I can build my hope. That is solid ground on which I can rest. Thank God for the doctrine of election. Now, the reason why the unbelief of Israel does not signal the failure of God to keep his promise is stated in verses 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, according to Paul, the reason why Israel's unbelief and rejection of Christ does not mean that the word of God has failed is because the covenant of grace was not made with all Israelites, but only with some. The covenant of grace was not made with all the children of Abraham, but only with one, namely Isaac. Paul then draws a principle from this, that being a child of the flesh does not make one a child of God. Rather, being a child of the promise makes one a child of God. Now, in order to make sense of Paul's argument, we need to understand first that there were actually two covenants in play with regard to Israel in the Old Testament. There was the covenant that God made with Abraham. We'll call it the Abrahamic covenant. And there was the covenant that God made with Israel as a nation. We'll call that the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant or the Old Covenant. Now, what makes this confusing is that these two covenants are are intertwined to such a degree in the Old Testament as to be barely indistinguishable. To make matters worse, there are times when God speaks to Abraham in anticipation of the future covenant with Israel. And there are times, many of them in fact, when God speaks to Israel with reference to the original covenant to Abraham. Did we not have the New Testament, we would probably conclude that these covenants were one and the same. That at Sinai, God was simply restating what he had said to Abraham. But it's not true. Paul, in fact, is the first one to separate these two covenants and to treat them as distinct. And this distinction holds the key to Paul's argument in Romans 9 through 11 and in other places like Galatians 3 and 4. Indeed, it holds the key to Paul's entire gospel. So let's look at these two covenants and let's see how they are distinct in order that we can understand what Paul means in verse 6 when he says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. I contend that in that verse he's speaking of two covenants. Not all who are descended from Israel, that is not all who are part of the Sinai covenant, are Israel, that is, partake of the Abrahamic covenant. 
When God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of Babylon, he established with him a covenant which is described in Genesis 15. That night God appeared to Abraham and he told him to look up at the stars and to number them if he could. And he said, so shall your offspring be. And Genesis 15, 6 says that, God, that Abraham believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. God then gave to Abraham a sign of his promise. He performed a covenant ceremony. A ceremony that's very strange to us, but it was very familiar to people in the ancient world. In this ceremony, Abraham brought sacrificial animals before the Lord. And he slew them and he cut them in half. And he placed them on opposite sides of one another. Then the Lord, okay, actually technically it's a theophany or a, an appearance of the Lord in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. The Lord passed between the sacrificial pieces. Now there's three important notes to point out about this Genesis 15 covenant. First, It's a covenant of promise. It is an unconditional covenant of grace. You will look in vain in Genesis 15 for any command or any obligation that God lays upon Abraham. It is sheerly a one-way promise. Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. God promises Abram a son of his own flesh. Verse 4, innumerable offspring, verse 5, and the land of his sojournings, verse 7. And he commands nothing in return. It's an unconditional promise. Second, it's a covenant through faith. Abraham believed God's promise, and God counted his faith as righteousness. Now, Abraham wasn't righteous, but God counted him as righteous because he believed God's promise. God justified, to use Paul's language, God justified Abraham through faith alone, which means that all of his sins, all of his deceptions, all of his past idolatries, all of the guilt of his former paganism when he, like the rest of the citizens of Ur, worshiped the moon god, all of that was forgiven to him, washed away, and God declared him righteous in his sight. Why? Because Abraham did something? No, because he believed God's promise. Third, it's a unilateral covenant. In other words, God took upon himself the responsibility for fulfilling the covenant promise. This is the meaning of that strange ceremony. This is why God and God alone passed through the pieces you'll note that Abraham did not pass through. The idea behind this ceremony is that the one who passes through these slain carcasses is saying, let the same fate befall me if I fail to keep the covenant. In other words, God took upon himself the responsibility for the covenant, and he took upon himself the curse if he failed to keep it. But there's another covenant ceremony between God and Abraham, and this one is described in Genesis 17. This ceremony is related to the earlier covenant of Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant, but it contains elements that are different from what we found in that earlier passage. Abraham is now 99 years old. A quarter century has passed 
since God first called him. And much has happened in that time, including that unsavory episode with Hagar and the birth of Ishmael. But once again, God promises to make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. Genesis 17, 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. That is essentially the same promise that was given in Genesis 15. That's the Abrahamic covenant. But then, God adds a further component that, at least in our perspective, kind of muddies things up. He attaches the sign of circumcision to the covenant. And he commands Abraham to circumcise himself and everyone else in his household, his servants as well as his sons. And he says, Genesis 17, 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. Suddenly, there's a condition laid upon this covenant. Then God promises Abraham that his wife Sarah will give birth to a son. They will call his name Isaac. And that the everlasting covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, will be with Isaac and not with Ishmael. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Everlasting covenant is code for Abrahamic covenant. Now, It is here in Genesis 17 that what God does through the sign of circumcision is to anticipate a future covenant with the nation of Israel, even while he continues to speak of the first covenant, the covenant of grace, the Abrahamic covenant, the everlasting covenant of promise. Now again, three points to note. First, there's a physical sign, circumcision, which represents inclusion in a covenant people. Second, The sign of circumcision is given to all of Abraham's offspring. Ishmael as well as Isaac. Third, yet the covenant of promise, the Abrahamic covenant, is going to be with Isaac and not Ishmael. In other words, there are some who are circumcised, who are a part of the eternal, or the, I'm sorry, the external covenant people, the visible covenant people but they do not participate in the Abrahamic covenant of grace. Let me say that again, because it's important. It sounds like not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. There are some who are circumcised and therefore are a part of the external covenant, but do not participate in the Abrahamic covenant of grace. From the beginning then, we see that there was an elect covenant people within the external covenant people. Finally, we need to look at one more 
passage, and it's Exodus 19. After God delivered his people, 400 years later, from the bondage of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and he took a people, the descendants of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, and he established a covenant with them, thus constituting them as a nation. Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, watch this, watch this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Does that sound like the Abrahamic covenant? That's because it's not. This covenant is conditional. Conditioned upon Israel's faithfulness. Once more, let me make three notes. First, note that this is a national, corporate, external covenant made with a physical, ethnic people. And likewise, the blessings of the covenant are physical and external. A land, prosperity, protection from enemies, peace, and so forth. Second, Note that the blessings of the covenant are conditioned upon Israel's faithful obedience. If Israel obeys, they'll be blessed. If they disobey, they'll be what? Cursed. Accursed. And cut off from Christ. This is why in Exodus 24, we see the blood of the sacrifice is sprinkled upon the people. Contrary to what happened in Genesis 15, when it was God himself who passed between the bloody sacrifices. Third, although it's not in Exodus 19, it is in Leviticus 12. Note that the sign of circumcision from Genesis 17 came to be attached to this Sinai covenant. To summarize then, all right, so let me, let me try and draw all of this into one One paragraph that will help us put something under our feet as we approach Romans 9-6. God made a covenant with Abraham and with some, but not all, of his offspring in Genesis 15. It was a covenant of promise. It was a covenant of grace. It was an unconditional covenant. And the blessings of this covenant are eternal justification, and everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of God, and fellowship with God. I will be your people, or I will be your God, and you will be my people. This covenant is entered into by faith. And yet not all of the physical descendants of Abraham are included in this covenant. It was given to Isaac, not Ishmael. God then made a covenant with Israel in Exodus 19. It was a different covenant. This was a covenant of law, not of promise. The blessings of this covenant were temporal, land, prosperity, peace, not eternal. And they were conditioned upon Israel's obedience. If you will obey my voice. And all of the physical descendants of Israel are included in this covenant, signified by the fact that all of them are circumcised. Genesis 17, as does much of the New Testament, 
blends these two covenants together so as to make them nearly indistinguishable. That is, until Paul comes along. And what Paul does is to take these two covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the Sinai covenant, and to these two covenants, which in the Old Testament are twisted together like spaghetti, and he separates them, he distinguishes them, and he sets them side by side, by side by side like railroad tracks. Now, as we established last week, God foretold that Israel would break his covenant, the Sinai covenant. They would come under the curse and they would be cast away. That's Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 and 2. But then he promised that he would redeem them. He would bring them back. He would circumcise their hearts so that they would love him with all of their hearts and all of their souls. And that they would keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 30, verses 3 to 6. Likewise, through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the rest of the prophets, God promised that he would make a new covenant with his redeemed people. For instance, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, here's the crucial point Paul is going to make. Okay? This is what he's doing in Romans 9, 6. That promised new covenant that is found throughout the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 31 and 32 and Ezekiel 36 and 37 and so forth. That promised new covenant is not connected with the covenant with Israel at Sinai. It is connected with the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. It is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. It is the one covenant of grace. And that is the crucial point that lies at the foundation of Paul's teaching in Romans 9, in Romans 4, in Galatians, and elsewhere. You need to understand this because this is why the word of God has not failed. The word of God is the everlasting covenant promise to Abraham and to his offspring, not the conditional promise to Israel as a nation. And the hinge of Paul's argument in Romans 9, 6 to 13 concerns the identity of those offspring to whom God made the promise. The promise was not made with all Israel, the physical offspring, as was the Sinai covenant. It was made with an Israel within Israel, the spiritual offspring, as was the Abrahamic covenant. It was not made with every descendant of Abraham, the children of the flesh, but only with those descendants who, like Isaac, are children of the promise. That's his point. And you've got to understand that there are two covenants if you're going to understand Paul's point. So with that foundation, let me summarize verses 6 to 8. Even though the vast majority of the Israelites have rejected Christ and are therefore accursed and cut off from God, verses 1 to 5 of Romans 9, 
yet the word of God has not failed. Verse 6a. Why not? Because the promise, that is the promise of everlasting salvation, that is the Abrahamic covenant, was never given to the entire nation of Israel, but rather to a subset within Israel. Second half of verse 6. The promise was never given to all the children of Abraham, but only to Isaac, verse 7. From that, Paul derives this theological principle. This means, verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So the recipients of the word of God, the everlasting covenant, the promise, whatever one wants to call it, they are the children of God or the children of promise, and they are not determined along physical, ethnic, biological lines of descent. They're determined by something else. What is it? What determines who are the children of the flesh and who are the children of the promise and therefore the offspring of Abraham with whom God made the everlasting covenant? In verses 6 to 8, Paul established that the word of God has not failed because the promise of eternal salvation was not given to all Israelites but only to some. It wasn't given to all the children of Abraham but only to one. Now in verses 9 to 13, Paul establishes what is it that makes the difference between the Israel with whom God made the Abrahamic covenant, the everlasting promise, and the larger Israel with whom he did not. What makes the difference between the the children of the flesh with whom God did not make the covenant and the children of the promise with whom he did? What is the difference? That's what Paul's concerned to answer in verses 9 to 13. And he, he answers this by providing two illustrations of the distinction between the children of the promise and the children of the, of the flesh. He provides these two illustrations, and then he just comes out and states clearly and unambiguously what it is that makes the decisive difference. Now, these verses are structured strangely, so I'm going to give them to you, not as they come, but in accordance with Paul's logical flow of thought. The first illustration of this distinction between the children of the flesh and the children of the promise is that of Isaac and Ishmael. Look first at verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Right? Then Paul draws the conclusion about how it's not the children of the flesh, but the children of the promise who are the offspring to, God, to whom God made the covenant promise. He then continues in verse 9 with this illustration of Isaac and Ishmael. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. See, Abraham had two sons at the time. He had more later. Ishmael was his firstborn by Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. Isaac was born 14 years later by Sarah, Abraham's wife. Both Isaac and Ishmael were circumcised. Both were externally members of the covenant community. But God said to Abraham, my covenant of grace is with Isaac, not Ishmael. I will make myself known to Isaac, not Ishmael. I will redeem Isaac, not Ishmael. I will be Isaac's God, not Ishmael's. Now that's startling. In itself. But someone may say, well, but Ishmael wasn't the legitimate heir of Abraham. Only Isaac was the legitimate heir. Only Isaac was born of his real wife, Sarah. Okay, says Paul, let me give you another illustration. 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, either good or bad, skip over to verse 12, she was told the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Now this illustration makes Paul's point even clearer. This time the two brothers are born of the same mother. So there's no question of legitimacy. Both are circumcised. So there's no question of external covenant identity. Furthermore, before they were born, before they'd done anything, either good or bad, God gave the promise to Jacob and not to Esau. So there's no question of morality. Finally, Esau was the firstborn. Therefore, according to human standards, the birthright belonged to him. Yet God said, the older shall serve the younger. I will set my covenant love upon Jacob and not upon Esau. I have loved, that is accepted, Jacob. I have hated, that is rejected, Esau. All right, so far, Paul has only established from the biblical examples of Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau that there has always been within the external covenant community whether we're talking about the nation of Israel or whether we're talking about the household of Abraham, there have always been children of the flesh and children of the promise. The example of Isaac and Ishmael show that physical descent from Abraham does not make one a child of God. The example of Jacob and Esau demonstrate that one's merit or one's works does not make one a child of God. But Paul hasn't yet just come out and told us what it is that makes one a child of God. What is the determinative difference between the two? What is, in the final analysis, the difference between Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau? The answer is given in verse 11, and it's as clear as can be. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So what has been implied in verse 7, God saying, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. And what has been implied in verse 12, God saying, the older will serve the younger is now made explicit. The decisive, determinative factor in who is a child of promise and who is a child of the flesh is God's purpose of election. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, not Esau. Furthermore, God chose them before they were born, before they had done anything, either good or evil, in order that it would be clear and unmistakable that the basis was God's choice, not their own works, not their own will, not their own faith, but God's sovereign purpose. Note verse 11, though they were not yet born and had not done anything either good or bad, she was told the older shall serve the younger in order that God's purpose of election would stand. He did it like this so that you and I would know that who gets into the kingdom and who doesn't belongs to God and not to man. It is not according to man who wills or runs, but according to God who has mercy. That is Paul's argument. Do you see it? You can disagree with me, that's fine, but, but at least disagree with him. Deal with his argument. 
God did not choose to set his covenant love upon Jacob because Jacob was more lovely than Esau. God did not choose to leave Esau under his wrath because Esau was more hateful than Jacob. God chose Jacob and not Esau, Isaac and not Ishmael, because of his own purpose of election. Therefore, those among Israel who have received Christ by faith and are therefore a part of the true Israel, who are the true children of Abraham, the children of the promise, the children of God, are so, says Paul, because God chose them to be so. And the vast majority of Israel who rejected Christ and have squandered all of their privileges, in effect selling their birthright like Esau, are therefore accursed of God, cut off from Christ, children of the flesh, excluded from the covenant of grace, because God did not choose them. The word of God has not failed, says Paul. Indeed, it has accomplished the exact elective purpose for which God sent it out. That's Paul's main argument in this passage. Now you may ask, some of you probably are, is that right? Is that fair? Is there injustice with God? It's interesting you should ask that because Paul asked the very same question in verse 14. And it's with that question that we will deal next week. This morning, I want to close by taking this doctrine of election and applying it to you personally. I want to do it like this. If I were to ask you why you believe when your brother or your sister or your neighbor or your friend or your co-worker doesn't, how would you answer? How do you think Paul wants the Romans to answer that question, particularly the Jewish Christians in the congregation? Why have you accepted the Messiah and and the rest of your countrymen, according to the flesh, haven't? What do you think he wants them to answer in light of what he's just said? Why have they accepted the Messiah when their family and their friends and their neighbor have rejected them and they just continue to go on to the synagogue, they continue to read the Torah, and they continue to trust in their own righteousness through the law? Now, of course, the same goes for the Gentiles in the congregation. Why do they believe on Christ when when the rest of the Roman populace continue to worship at the pagan temples? What makes the distinction between, between the church and the rest? Based upon what we have seen in today's passage, how would Paul have them to respond? I think it would be like this. It was not according to my own birth or my own nationality or ethnicity, or morality, nor any other factor within me. It was according to God's purpose of election. It was according to the purpose of him who calls. Now, how do you think you ought to respond? I believe Romans 9 gives you one answer and one answer only to the question, why me and not another? And that answer is God. This passage doesn't tell us why God chooses one and not another. But it does tell us that this choice has no basis in anything in us. God chose me. Not according to my works or my will. Not according to my faith or my faithfulness. But according to his own purpose and grace. Which means he loved me which means he loves me still. 
which means he will love me always. Why? Because he set his love, his covenant love upon me according to his own purpose and not my purpose. My purpose falters. His purpose is eternal and unchanging. There is confidence and joy and humility and worship in this like you have never experienced before. If you would grasp hold of this truth with your heart as well as your mind, it would change everything about the way you see yourself and the way you see God. Now, there are questions remaining. There is no denying that. What about others? Why not them too? Some of those questions will be answered in the coming weeks from the rest of Romans 9. Some of them won't. But you must let God be God and leave the purpose of election in his hands and not in yours. But if you are in Christ, if you, you trust him as your savior, if you love him as your Lord and king, That is the evidence that you're like Isaac and not like Ishmael, that you're like Jacob and not like Esau. That is the evidence of your election. And this doctrine exists for your comfort and your confidence and your joy because it tells you that you are loved freely, faithfully, and forever.